Amen. According to a uh, news article from 2018, so that's fairly recent, Monowai, Nebraska. Anybody everybody been there before? And Monowai, Nebraska was a relatively bustling town of 150 residents because of the train, the way it came through, and this is back in the 1930s. Monowai, Nebraska. Several businesses there, including grocery stores. Um, there were... Um, um, uh, there was even a prison that was operating out of there, restaurants, but gradually farming conditions worsened, jobs were lost to automation, and so people moved on looking for a greater opportunity. Those that stayed eventually died off. Well, Elsie Eiler's husband, Rudy, died in 2004, and when that happened, Elsie Eiler became the last remaining resident of Monowai, Nebraska. Today, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, Monowai is the only incorporated place in America where there is just one resident. Elsie is mayor, clerk, treasurer, librarian. She may even be dog catcher. I'm not sure. Now, I'm sure some of you think about that because you feel the walls closing in on yourself and you're like, man, that might be great just for a little while. <laughs> But after a little while, I'm sure we would all be clamoring to see other people because let's just be honest, we need other people. Well, it turns out, Elsie actually runs a uh, little diner there, and uh, her patrons have to cross into the town limits to come visit. She's open six days a week, so she found her way to have community in her town of one. A recent study found that nearly half of all Americans feel lonely. According to a report by NPR, one organization took a, a nationwide survey of 20,000 adults and found that 54%, 54% of respondents said they feel like no one actually knows them well. Additionally, 56% of respondents said the people they surround themselves are not necessarily with them. And approximately 40% said they lack companionship, their relationships aren't meaningful, and that they feel isolated from others. Isn't that incredible? Well, I'm not sure if loneliness is on the rise as people report is happening in our nation today. But I do know this. There's never been a more serious time uh, with regards to loneliness than we have in our culture today. And so let me just say from the outset that God does not want anyone to go through life or through eternity alone. In fact, creation shouts that God understands how difficult loneliness can be. The very first time the scripture says that something is not good, it's when God looks down on the man and says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, we're not going to go into the full extent of that statement, but if you just take it at face value, what we can read is that God intends for people to be in relationship with other people. And not only that, God wants to be in relationship with you. In fact, so much so that he would send his son Jesus to the cross so that he could obtain the right to be in relationship with you. The Bible, the entire Bible, is a story about God establishing a family. And the crux of the matter is this. God wants you in his family. God wants you in his family. And he goes to great lengths to do that. So are you part of his family today? Well, we began a series at the start of this year called On Your Mark, and the premise of the series from the book of Hebrews has been to elaborate on what it takes for us to run the race that God has prepared for us. 
And we've looked at several different spiritual practices that kind of help us move down the road from one moment to the next, that help us to mature as runners in the spiritual race of life. And one thing I've noticed about myself is when it comes to running, I do a whole lot better when I have somebody to run with. If I don't have somebody to run with, then I might bring my clothes, I might bring my shoes, I might plan to run, I might even schedule the time. And then when the time comes to run, I find something else to do. That's just kind of the way that I am. Well, when it comes to running the race of the Christian life, it is even more important that we have one another. There are no lone rangers in the Christian life. We need one another. And so today we're going to look at spiritual growth through the practice of Christian fellowship, through Christian community that we might run the race in front of us by using the practice of community. Last week we read and applied Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22 um, to our lives. The primary exhortation from the passage is about drawing near to God, and we applied that to the area of prayer, and we said that we're to uh, devote ourselves to prayer. But the writer of Hebrews takes this whole passage, and he actually makes three exhortations. That's the first. Is that to, The first is to draw near to God, but then he makes two more, and we're going to conclude our series and con- uh, look as a part of this message by looking at the final part of this passage. So Hebrews 10, I'm going to read to you this morning verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews exhorts believers, and you'll have to remember the last week or look back in your, verse, in your Bible to verse 19. He says, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place of God, since we have Jesus as our great priest, then let us draw near to him. And then this morning we see, let us profess our hope in him and let us spur one another along. So what I want to propose to you in this message this morning is that in order for us to run with endurance the race before us this year so that we might mature um, in love for God and in love for others, we need one another. The Christian life is built on community. There's two key commands in this passage that all have to do with the way we respond to others. The first command is to pass along the faith uh, to other people around us by, you know, sharing or professing the hope that we believe in. The second is to run in such a way that it pushes others forward. So we're going to start there at the beginning. Look with me at verse 23. As we've already been reminded here, um, there are three exhortations in this important passage of Hebrews. The first, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Looked at that last week. So verse 23 gives us the second of these three exhortations. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What a hold fast means to grip tightly. It's not like hold on too quickly before the opportunity moves away. It means that we are to hold on to in such a way, and to hold unswervingly. That's how some of your uh, versions of scripture may put it. Or let's keep a firm grip on. And the word that the New American Standard uses here is this word confession. So let us have a tight grip on our confession of hope. Now we have to remember 
The original readers of the epistle to the Hebrews were Jewish Christians who were in the first century, and they are being tempted to abandon the hope that they have in Jesus and to return to that ritual worship under the Old Covenant. That's what they're struggling with. That's what the temptation is for them. And so the writer is saying, don't shrink back. In fact, if you read through Hebrews 10, you'll see that's the language that shows up. We are not those who shrink back. So he's saying, press forward. And the exhortation, though, is not about trying to hold on to our salvation. In other words, don't grip to it like you're going to lose it. That's not what he's saying here. And the reason is, is that we don't put hope in ourselves in order to be able to be saved. We don't trust ourselves to be able to grip that tightly. The hope is in Jesus. It's hope saying, Jesus, I hope you hold on to me because I know I'm not able in my own power, by my own will, to grip tightly enough to you. And we trust Jesus to grip us so tightly we can never slip out. But Stedman says here in his commentary that confess or confession in this verse is equivalent to the word profess or profession. So it's a profession of hope. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting readers to keep a firm grip on the hope that they profess. And so what I think he's saying here is we are to keep on professing the hope that we have placed in Jesus. We're to keep on professing to it, to staying committed to it. And the first says to hold fast to hope without wavering. And that means to not bend. Um, You know, I I think that most people in life, um, the Christian life, you experience certain things that make you look at your faith a little bit different. Uh, Because these things uh, maybe bump up against you. And some people it causes doubts. Um, it's an experience or maybe a, a conversation with somebody. For some people, it causes questions. Other people, it just reinforces the hope that they have. But the writer says we are to keep hoping in a way that does not bend. In other words, we don't let all of those other things that come in to force our hope to bend. We make those things move because of our hope. Let, let, me, let me see if I can explain this in a certain way. One of the tasks that we have to deal with at our home, I'm sure you don't have to deal with this, is washing dishes. And so we have to deal with the loading and the unloading of a dishwasher, which is a great blessing because we have a dishwasher. And, you know, unloading a dishwasher is not that difficult, right? Mindless. You just kind of pull out and put up. But when you have to, now maybe women don't deal with this, or maybe you. I shouldn't say that. But as a man, I would say, sometimes I look at this and I think, how am I going to get all of that into this, you know? It's kind of the idea. So what am I to do? And I've learned this trick is that um, the, the metal pans and dishes, the glass dishes, those things don't have any give to them. You better put them in first. Plastic cups and bowls, you can, arrange, you, you can like twist those and make them fit in the dishwasher. That's what I've learned. So you start with that thing that will not bend before you put the other things in. Our hope is the same way. Because a lot of times we have these doubts or these questions and we try to, it starts to force our hope. What we believe about God, well, maybe I'm wrong. We start to doubt it. Instead, what we've got to decide is, what am I going to believe first? And I believe, first of all, that Jesus is who he says he is. That his scripture is true. That I can trust in him. That he loves me. That he's just. And then all those other things will fit around. They got a little bend in them. But my hope is going to have no bend to it, unwaveringly. And so the, the writer gives this phrase as a reinforcement to this idea. He says here, he who promised is faithful. 
God is faithful. I can believe that with everything that's in me. He does not let down. He does not let alone. He does precisely what he says he will do, and he does it to the greatest degree. Our reason for holding fast to our hope is because we can count on God. I can depend on him. I can share my confidence in him because I know in the end he is faithful. He never failed me, and he's not going to start now. So what I want to propose to you after all of that is this, what I think we learn from this verse. If we have drawn near to God, then surely the next logical step is to share the certainty of our hope. So I've drawn near to God. Surely the next thing I'll do is tell people, is I'll continue to profess that I trust in God because I've gone near to him. And now it makes me even more certain. There's an interesting thing in our culture where we really like to share something that we've um, experienced. You know, like if you see something really funny, you want to show somebody else. You have this experience or you hear something that's real inspiring or read something that's moving. You're like, you got to see this. You know, and you, that's the first thing you want to do after you've seen it. In our culture, because of smartphones and uh, social media, we, we retweet or we share or we copy and paste a link in a text message. And you've got to look at this, you know, because we want people to know just how funny it was. We want them to experience the same joy that we have. But what about when it comes to our hope in God? There is nothing more revolutionary, there is nothing more life-changing than the hope of Jesus' blood and righteousness. But we are less and less apt to personally engage with others, to share with them the hope that we have placed in Jesus. Even though we know he's faithful, we just get anxious there. Now we'll come in here, right? A little bit of an echo chamber. Isn't God good? Amen. Yes, God's good. But for some reason, it makes it really hard for us to go across the street or to engage with some other person because we think, I don't know what they're going to say. What if they don't say amen? What if they've got a question I can't answer? And what we do is we hold on to our hope that is meant to be professed. I mentioned at the start of this message that loneliness is a real issue in our society today. Another serious problem is hopelessness. We live in a world that doubts the existence of absolute truth. So since nothing is really true enough that I can build my life on it, then what am I going to depend on to care for me, to, to, to save me? What am I going to depend on to bring me out when I fall into a pit? Well, as believers in Jesus, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place of God, and since we have Jesus as our great high priest, we have found that the remedy to all of these problems, to all of life, to hopelessness, is Jesus. Are you willing to share the remedy that you've found in Jesus for those who are grasping at straws because they are hopeless in this life? People need the hope that's found in Jesus. And uh, later on in chapter 10, if you skip down to verse 31... It says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now that sounds like a real challenging verse to us. Why is it so terrifying? Well, to go before God without the covering of Jesus' blood is a terrifying thing. Because what are we going to say to him? What are we going to try to show to him as if we deserve some sort of grace? We, don't, we need Jesus' blood. That's what we need. And so all, if you've, if, because of Jesus' shed blood and because of his resurrection from the dead, we can have hope. 
We can have hope that our sins will be forgiven and that we can have eternal life with him. All we have to do is receive Jesus into our lives. That's all we have to do. Believe in him for forgiveness of sin. If you have received that hope, why are you not professing to the hope that you have? The greatest Baptist preacher of all time is Charles Spurgeon. And he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Let me say that again for you. He says, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Every one of us is called to be a missionary. Disciples do not merely exist to sit on the church roll. They're not meant to just operate in ministries at the church once a week. As followers of Jesus, we are called to engage by living on mission as missionaries. We are to go and tell. Living on mission is not the career of a select few that go to a far-off land. It's the calling of all disciples. It's the commission to all disciples. It's the command to all disciples. We are all called as missionaries. So since we have confidence to enter the holy place of God, and since we have Jesus as our high priest, let us pass along the hope that we profess in Jesus. We've got the best news. We need to share it. Other runners in this great race of life need the hope that we have. And then the writer of Hebrews concludes his thoughts saying, finally, let us spur others along. So look with me at verse 24. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is the third and final of the three exhortations. And we're immediately challenged to think through how to relate to others who are running the race with us. He says, give careful consideration. You know what that means? Give thought to. In other words, don't just accidentally encourage somebody. Plan it out. Think through, how can I encourage them to act in a good way, to act in a loving way? How can I do that? We're to plan it out. We're to spur others to love and good deeds. This phrase that he says here, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. That phrase is found all throughout the New Testament. In the scriptures, and you can even think of some of these verses. Believers are exhorted to love one another, to forgive one another, to build up one another, to greet one another. We're called to submit to one another, to pray for one another, to accept one another, to be kind one to another. And on and on, the Christian life is about one another. It places significant weight on the fellowship or on community. That's what the Christian life is about. So the race we run should include this aspect of provoking others on. You know, those who are running in the race to run harder, to run faster, to run longer with regards to love and good deeds. You know what this is? This is the opposite of collusion. See, very often, rather than being a community where we demonstrate grace so that whenever you show up here today, having gone into the world this past week, you tripped up and you sinned, and you're looking for a community that will lift you up, will say you're forgiven in Jesus, and then point you in the right direction and say, keep going. Instead, what we very often do is we uh, create this place where we tolerate certain sins. We act like, well, they're not that bad. Those people do really bad things. What you've done is not that big a deal. And then we collude to accept spiritual laziness. We don't urge one another forward. We, as in fact, we, we kind of say, now don't get too fanatical about your faith here. You know, just kind of keep it right here within this box. 
That's the opposite of what we should do. We are to find people that are here and we're to push them forward. We say, run hard by loving others. Run hard by doing good things, great things, sacrificial things for the kingdom. So how do we spur one another along? First of all, he says here, by not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Evidently, the first century was a real interesting time in the Christian church. There were people in the first century who were a part of the church that found reasons not to go to worship. They had other commitments that they would come up with. You know, they were annoyed by certain people, and they're like, I don't want to run into them. Or maybe they had a really busy weekend, and they're just tired. Or maybe they just needed a little bit of me time. I I just need a break from that. Or maybe they were nervous about the weather, and I I don't want to get out on that. Or maybe there were certain songs they didn't like, and they're like, I don't want to hear that. Or, you know what, that guy who speaks, that, that message doesn't do anything for me. That's what they would evidently do in the first century. Can you imagine a culture like that in the church? Did you know that the scriptures do not offer options for believers to neglect corporate worship? There's no option there. Corporate worship is an essential element for the Christian life. First of all, because it prioritizes making much of God. That ought not be just a one time a week occasion, but surely, goodness, we will not neglect the one time when we get to come together with everyone. Second, it puts us in direct fellowship with others, and the scriptures is all about the one another. How am I going to encourage and love and build up and forgive one another if I'm not with one another? Then look at the next phrase in verse 25, but encouraging one another. So we come together as a church in order to encourage one another. In other words, I'm not going simply because I need it and it's important for me and it helps me. I go because I'm meant to be there so that I might encourage somebody else. They need me, what I can bring because of the Holy Spirit in me. You know, we're pretty self-centered when it comes to worship, which is a really backwards thing. Because worship is about, supposed to be about making much of God, but instead we make it a whole lot about us and our preferences, you know, the certain things that we want to get out of it, and the certain things that lift us, but it's supposed to be about lifting Him. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that part of corporate worship is about encouraging others. So when we come together as a church, it should not be about, you know, what did I get from the message today, or how did the music lift me? Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I, I experienced that, though that I think I'm so glad I was here because it, what it did for me. But your presence here this morning may be most useful for the Christian brother or sister that's sitting around you that just needs somebody to come alongside and say, you got this. The Lord's with you. And I love you. And I'm thankful for you. And I'm praying for you. A key to the Christian life is one another. And verse 25 says that encouraging one another becomes even more important as you see the day drawing near, is what the verse says. What is the day? Uh, Many Old Testament prophets, Malachi is one of them, he referred to this great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the day that Jesus Christ will return, the second coming of Christ, the end of time. And it is a sure event, and it is drawing near. There was a news report this past week about the doomsday clock. Did any of y'all see this? The doomsday clock, it's uh, evidently set by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. 
It was created in the 40s as uh, there was this race between um, uh, an, an arms race, nuclear arms race between the United States and the former Soviet Union. And the clock was meant to warn of impending disasters. It takes into account nuclear weapons, rising geopolitical tensions, as well as changes in the environment. Well, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists this, in the last couple of weeks set the clock now at 100 seconds before midnight. That's the closest it's ever been to midnight, which is supposed to signify the end of time. In other words, an alarm is being sounded about the end of time. Now, I think there's probably some political motivations in that whole um, uh, doomsday clock. But there is no denying that our world is experiencing increasing division and ever-increasing global crises. I don't know when Jesus is going to return. But when I look around me, I recognize that the world seems to be spiraling out of control. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 37 there, chapter 10, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Jesus is going to return. The uncertainty about when and how will not always prevail. Someday soon, a cataclysmic event will announce to the whole world that King Jesus is coming to reign. But certain unpleasant activities will usher us towards that. So as we're experiencing all of that, the writer says we need to encourage one another so that we will cling to the hope that we profess as we encourage one another towards love and good deeds. Well, as members of God's family, we are responsible to spur one another toward love and good deeds. And that cannot happen if we neglect being in worship and in fellowship with one another. So let me apply this to you. The body of Christ at First Baptist Church of Columbia needs you. and needs each of us. Many of you have been watching from a distance and you need to step into the fellowship of belonging to a local church. Um, well, I'm going to give you some very easy steps to do that. The first of all is to find a small group or what we call Sunday school class. You need to find a place where you can belong. It's, you know, to come in here, the Lord speaks, and he can really work in your life, but we believe life change happens best within the context of a small group. People that are praying for one another, that are discussing together, that are urging one another forward. When somebody has a need, they're stepping in to meet it, and they're encouraging each other. Well, that's what Sunday school is about, so you need to get plugged into a small group. If you haven't done that, there are classes for you. Because we have all kinds of different classes. In fact, Philip and our discipleship staff are looking at starting new classes. And the reason is there's new people. And new people, everybody needs to belong to a Sunday school class, a small group. So what are you waiting on? Some of you need to step into church membership. You need to prioritize being at corporate gatherings this week. You've been visiting for a long time. But rather than just showing up, you need to start serving. And you need to start giving. You need to be a part of what's going on. You need to stop just coming when it's convenient, and you need to make it a habit to be in church. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, but I sure am glad he says it so I can say it to you. You need to devote yourself to being here in order to encourage one another. I'm going to tell you, it's good for you, but it's so very important for one another. On Your Mark has been about running the race that Christ has for us. It's about maturing in love for God and others. So that you are further along in your race by the time we get to the end of this year. So how are we to do that? We've looked at four key steps. First step, read your Bible. It's the key way we grow. It's, it's the most important way to know God. So you prioritize the receiving of God's word. 
Second thing is, uh, you confess to God. You keep short accounts with him. You come clean with him through confession. of saying, it's, you call it sin, I'll call it sin. I'm sorry for it. I want to turn and go a different direction. And then the third thing is you pray. You devote yourself to communication with God through prayer. And then today we see here, we do spiritual life together. We step into fellowship. And, you know, we see in the early church what that looks like, um, of them living inside of that. And so I'm just going to tell you real quick to wrap up what spiritual life together looks like. And we see it in the early church. First of all, it takes authenticity. Believers in the first century church were so gripped by the good news that Jesus gives grace and forgiveness that when they came together, the masks came off. They, they didn't try to just make themselves look better than they were. They were honest about where they were spiritually. They were honest about the temptations that were there and the sin. And so fellowship is where who they were on the outside matched who they were on the inside. Well, that's so important here at the Fellowship at First Baptist, that in your Sunday school class, in your small group and interactions, we don't just try to look like we're better, but we're real honest about where we are so that we can push one another along. Second thing is fellowship requires commitment. It doesn't happen by accident. In fact, in uh, Acts 2, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the teaching. Well, that's God's word. And then it says day by day, they would meet in the temple. It doesn't say they continued to meet in the temple courts when it was convenient. They were devoted to it. So it takes commitment. Third, it takes sharing. Fellowship requires sharing. We share hope. We share one another's burdens. We share one another's pain and suffering. We share truth with one another which is often uncomfortable, but it's so very important. The Christian life is not about sitting in the bleachers. It's not about spectating. Whether you are willing to admit it or not, you are running a race. And so First Baptist Church, I think it's time we tighten our laces, we get on our marks, and we start running the race that God's put in for us with endurance. That's going to happen by committing to fellowship with the body of Christ. Father and God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that you went to the cross so that we might be able to be in relationship with you. God, and we pray now as you speak to us through your word that we might be willing to respond. God, I know you're calling each of us to run a race. And so now, if you're speaking to our hearts, let us say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come to a time of response, and the truth is, some of you just need to say, I'm going to run the race. Others might need to make a commitment. It might need be following in believer's baptism like we witnessed this morning. It might be committing to Christ if you've never taken that step. It may be joining the church um, uh, through membership or something like that. So I'm going to be down front. Some of our staff members will be there. If you've got a decision to make, as our choir sings, I want you to respond. You stand with me as we respond to the Lord.